Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Classical Education Podcast is proud to announce our consulting team. Beautiful Teaching is a classical education team consisting of master teachers and field experts. We specialize in professional development for schools, customized consulting, online immersion courses, seminar-led book studies, and comprehensive support for K-12 educators. Collectively, we have experts in the liberal arts for both classical homeschooling and classroom instruction. Our experiences range in many classical school models from classical charters to private Christian to home educators. If you are interested in connecting with someone to help your school, or you would just like to participate in a live immersion-based course, please visit beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com, or you can also visit us at our podcast website, classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash courses. And you can always email me at beautifulteaching at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to the show. We're joined today by Miss Mariah Martinez. And Mariah is one of our consultants, and we are so delighted to have her not only on our team, but also here conversing with us today about some things that we believe are very important to the the life of classical Christian education. And as a consultant, Ms. Martinez specializes in public charter schools, sixth through 12th grades, Socratic discussions, mechanics of grammar, mimetic writing, narration in upper schools, and classical curriculum design. So she brings a lot of uh, experience and expertise to our team, and we're just thrilled to have her with us today. I'd like Adrian, if you wouldn't mind, to just tell us a little bit about how you first met Mariah, because I believe it was you who invited her onto our team. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So Mariah was a new teacher when we were work when I was working at Responsive Ed, helping um, several schools transition transition to a classical model, and she was at one of our schools. And uh, it was, her, I think, your first year there, right? You were a brand new teacher at for Responsive Ed that year. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so she came into our uh, classical training and I had developed a bunch of different sessions and really talked um, quite extensively about narration. And Mariah was one of the teachers that really grasped the importance and the application of narration in the classroom. And she quickly implemented it really well with her middle school students and was emailing me regularly and sharing stories with me about what was happening in the classroom. And when I went and visited, I was so excited to see how well it was working. And she was she was fully on board with, with the transition and with making this happen in the classroom. And so I invited Mariah to be one of our uh, mentor teachers, because uh, at the time I was the um, classical methods director for the academics department for responsive ed. And we were allowed to have some mentor teachers that could help with other teachers. And I invited Mariah to be one of those. She did some training uh, with us, uh, with teachers, and was able to demonstrate how she was applying narration with middle school students in the classroom, making it very dynamic and fun and interesting, and gave our other teachers some really great ideas and some insights and wisdom into how to make narration work with middle school students, which can be challenging if they've never narrated before, which probably most of them never had. It was brand new. And so I was so impressed with, with how she did it. And Mariah and I have kept it, kept in contact. Uh, we've worked together. I brought her on to a project at the University of Dallas, helping write some curriculum there for part of her internship as a, a student in the Masters of Classical Grad, Grad Program at UD, which she has since graduated from. And so I'm excited to have her on the show. Um, Mariah, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how you got involved in classical education? 
Yeah. So um, I'm not sure if my story is conventional or not, um, but I actually had no intention of being a teacher at all, um, even a little bit. So when I was doing my undergrad work, um, I thought that I wanted to um, go like get a PhD. I was studying philosophy. Um, I wanted to like basically be a permanent student. Um, and I got to my senior year and realized I was super burned out and that philosophy programs weren't really what I thought they were. And I didn't necessarily have the temperament to be a professional philosopher. If that's even a real thing. Um, and so I was, it was Christmas break, my senior year. And I was like, well, what do I do? I don't have any real skills or a life plan. Um, and my best friend uh, mentioned to me that you could teach at charter schools in Texas and not be a certified teacher. Um, so I figured, okay, well, I have to have a job and make money so I can do anything for a year. So I'll do that. And um, I got a job at a classical charter school teaching first grade, which was questionable, but we got through it. You can do anything for a year. Um, and uh, even though first grade is not really where my my skills and my calling um, was, I actually really enjoyed it, which was surprising to everyone who knew me and also to me. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, let's try this for a little bit and see where it goes. Um, so I moved up the next year to do sixth, seventh and eighth grade. Um, and was like, all right, well, you know, we'll do this for a couple of years, see where it goes, maybe do grad school in a little bit, save up some money. And here I am almost eight years later, still doing it. So, you know, it's kind of my, my journey into classical education on accident. Well, Mariah, I appreciate you sharing your a little bit of your story. And I'm curious uh, to know, for someone who did not have a background in classical education or, or really grow up with it, what was it about it that, that first attracted you? And, you know, what were some of the things that you picked up on early on in your exposure to it that, that really made you think, okay, well, this is this is the right direction for me to go moving forward? So I went to public school, like I was never homeschooled or anything like that, like the whole way through, um, I guess it was a heathen public school child. And, uh, but something that I was able to do when I was in high school was the international baccalaureate program, which is like Europe's answer to American AP programs. And that is not a classical program, but I think it kind of has its roots in some classical ideas because it is very much, um, you know, you you have like a prescribed sort of liberal arts kind of path that you go down. Everyone has to take something called theory of knowledge, which is essentially, um, oh, the word just escaped me. The branch of philosophy about knowing things, whatever that one is, it'll come to me in like 10 minutes. Um, so like you have to do those things. It is progressive, but, you know, there, there's kind of that, that route there. Um, so I did do that in high school. Uh, and then in college, uh, I, again, did mostly liberal arts things. I, I double majored in philosophy and English. So it was a lot of great texts, a lot of primary sources. So I did have sort of that foundation. Um, and I, I knew that I had not really enjoyed being in the public education system growing up, um, outside of that that um, IB program that I did, I felt like the classes were not really challenging for anyone on any level, um, that they didn't really teach you anything uh, useful or interesting. Um, and so I, I knew that traditional education, I guess we call it, definitely had um, some issues and flaws. And so when I started teaching in a classical school, it was really interesting to see how different it was and how engaged all of the students were at every level. Um, it wasn't just for the smart kids or it wasn't dumbed down. It, you know, anybody could have access to these really cool ideas. Um, in first grade, they had us do Socratic seminars, um, which, you know, I never really 
considered to be a possibility, but the kids were doing it. Uh, and, you know, at the first grade level, having good insights and stuff. And so it, it, it was interesting to see a different version of what education could be and how it, it could connect with so many different people. I think a lot of our listeners, especially teachers, can relate to this feeling of getting a bit of a remedial education during their career as a teacher, because as we've discussed on a number of different episodes, our education system, even for teachers, uh, is, is so broken in a lot of ways and struggling in so many ways that people can come out with the correct credentials to teach, but then realize that they need to do a lot of remedial work themselves. And one of the great things about schools, uh, both private as well as charter schools that are working in the classical tradition, it gives the teachers an opportunity to re-examine the foundations of education or to put into practice some things that ultimately they, they come to fall in love with, which I think in so many ways is your story. One of the things I'd like you to, to talk about moving forward is how uh, you have noticed during your time in the classroom that the teachers are not the only ones doing the work of teaching, that in fact, the students show up and in some very um, some very important ways in the life of the school, teach one another. And that can be good and that can be bad. Could, could, you, could you touch on that for a little bit? Yes. So one of the, I think, really great things about classical education is that um, it does place the, I guess, act of, of learning really in the, the sphere of the students, especially as you get higher up in the grades. Um, so I, I teach at the high school level and, you know, if the kids don't do the reading, we basically can't have class um, because it, it is very much, you know, I'll, I'll have questions and I'll guide, but they're the ones who have to bring the material and the insights to the table. Um, and I've definitely had moments in classes where a kid has um, said something about a text that I'd never thought of before and um, was really insightful and changed the way that I viewed uh, some things about it. And so there, there definitely is um, that sort of aspect of, you know, we are fellow learners. I'm the most learned in the classroom um, just by I'm older and I have more experience. And by this point, I've read the books that I teach 75 billion times. So, you know, I'm, I'm bringing that to the table, but it's, it's by no means this kind of thing where I'm the one that has all of the secret knowledge and all of the correct answers. And they just have to sit there and, and listen to me. It is very much, um, this sort of, of co-learning process, which is really interesting, um, or it can be interesting when they do what they're supposed to do. So you have that, and, and that can be really, really positive. Um, I think something that people have to watch out for in classical education is um, letting discussions be a little bit too freewheeling, because uh, I've, I've seen discussions kind of turn down really weird rabbit trails. And if you don't have a good uh, leader kind of taking people back, people can get really stuck on uh, interpretations that don't have really any foundation in the text or history. Um, or, you know, these sometimes have their own idea and get really like attached to it and kind of derail everything. And that doesn't lead to truth necessarily. So I think there's kind of a balance that has to be struck with um, the leader. You do have to let people explore uh, different avenues of interpretation because you have to be humble enough to understand that you don't necessarily have all the answers or insights, but also, you know, there are better ways to interpret things uh, and there are wrong ways to interpret things. So you kind of have to really know kind of where that balance is. Yes, I think I think you're onto something there. And I'm I'm curious to know a little bit more about how you how you approach all of this in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could share a specific example of a time where a student brought something to a conversation that was a clear departure uh, from the text itself 
or clearly seem to be, let's say, ideologically driven versus something yes. that was um, really, really suited for what is um, what is really the goal of a classical classroom? So just recently, um, before break, I was doing end of the year, some like fun uh, Renaissance poetry with a group of 10th graders. And one of the poems uh, that we read um, was written by Marlo and it was, it was a love poem, but it didn't make use of any pronouns. Um, so it was uh, from the passionate shepherd to his love. And so we're reading through this poem and I kept referring to the lover as a she because this poem was written in the Renaissance and there's really no world where it would not have been a she. Um, realistically speaking, or at least, you know, if you had to gamble, that would be the, the pronoun to pick. Um, and I did have a student push back on that, uh, and, you know, say, well, the poet doesn't use any pronouns. It doesn't have to be a she. And, um, you know, I could tell that he was really going to like stick on this point. Um, so I did, you know, bring up the the rational explanation, like, listen, you know, this was the, the Renaissance um, era, you know, a male would not necessarily write a love poem to another male, like, that wouldn't be common, I'm not going to say it didn't happen, but probably not with uh, Marlowe, and, um, you know, it, I, I think I made the joke uh, that, yeah, there are no pronouns, it also could have been to a sheep, um, then, of course, because they're 10th graders, they really latched onto that and um, thought it was hilarious. And so that was how they chose to <laughs> interpret the poem uh, for the rest of the time, which was, you know, again, questionable. Um, but at least at that point, they I think they understood that it was almost certainly written to a woman and not to a man or a sheep. So. Well, I can definitely relate to that experience having taught middle schoolers, you know, whenever there's there's a way to to read something in a in in, in a way that um for them is is really just funny. Um, you know, that they will latch onto that and and you wonder um you know what the you know what's what's being what's being learned there. Um and and I, I guess the thing that I would want to always encourage is a proper posture towards any given text or towards the classroom or really the tradition in and of itself, which is first and foremost, one of humility and receptivity um, to, to learn and, and to not, not start out in a position of judgment. But it does seem to me that something that's part and parcel of the modern approach to education is to immediately put the student and the teacher in a in a posture of judgment over any given text. And that is very different than the, the approach that, that we have received in the classical, especially the classical uh, Christian position, um, which also adds on the additional layer of reading this um, through, um, through also an understanding of the revelation of, of, of Christ. And so I'm curious, um, as you teach in a charter school, uh, where there are some some limitations, um, how do you how do you handle those conversations? Where undoubtedly in, in high school, a lot of students are are receiving a lot of their education not in the classical classroom, but just within the culture. And so, um, I think in previous conversations, you you've talked to me about how you will have uh, students who actually pull together smaller groups of students and essentially. Um, teach them or indoctrinate them mm -hmm. in a certain cultural viewpoint, um, which is in some sense um, in direct opposition to at least the spirit of what you're trying to do in the classroom. So tell me a little bit about how you how you handle that as a teacher. Yeah, so working at a public school, because charter schools are public schools, does make some things a little bit more difficult. So I I can't you know, for example, stand in my classroom and, you know, 
actively preach the gospel, um, I would lose my license and my job if I did that. Um, but that doesn't mean that I can't present truth um, and I guess more subtle ways. So, you know, in, in for the example in that 10th grade class, you know, it's a medieval and Renaissance literature class. Um, there's absolutely no way that you can teach medieval and Renaissance literature without reference to the Christian faith. You just can't do it. Um, and so, like, we read Boethius, we read Dante, uh, and I give them the Bible stories uh, that they need to know in order to understand those texts. And we do. We talk about Christian theology and what these people believe. Um, and so, you know, I, I think you definitely present it wherever you can. Um, and it does help. I've, I've seen it help um, combat uh, misconceptions that students have about the Christian faith and what the church teaches and what Christians actually believe. Um, you know, when I did, when I did Dante this year, we did Purgatorio, um, cause I got a little bit burnt out on doing Inferno. So I just wanted to do something different. And they were really surprised, uh, to see that, um, for example, Dante put homosexuals in purgatory and they were like, why would he do that? And I was like, well, because, you know, the Christian view of sin is, you know, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven if Christ is at the center of your life. Um, it's not that Christians don't struggle with sin. Um, it's that, you know, the difference between the souls in purgatory and the souls in hell and the, the souls in hell made the sin their God. Whereas the souls in purgatory have God in Christ at the center of their life. And so I, I think for some students, that was really eye-opening. And I don't think they knew that Christians thought that way. Um, and so, you know, there, there's that going on. But yes, there are um, other, I guess, forces at work that you have to contend with. And I'm, I'm sure this is true in Christian schools as well, though probably not um, on as big a scale. I, I have had kids um, try to actively indoctrinate their peers in gender ideology or um, critical race theory. And, you know, some of it you can't stop because it happens where you don't see, um, you know, like in the lunchroom, you can't police every single conversation that goes on between students uh, or, you know, while they're waiting outside for their parents to pick them up or we have a, a recess period built in. Um, so you, you can't stop it completely. Um, but I think whenever you hear stuff like that, I've engaged in conversations with students, you know, why do you think that? Have you considered a different perspective? And so just offering, I think, truth to them, even in the form of questions can make them rethink some positions that they've received as dogma from the culture. Right. Uh, it seems to me that that people in general and students in particular do have a hunger for ideas and there's a natural receptivity there. And of course, you know, because of some of the the way we think about education and some of the baggage that has accrued there, um, some students may have a, a natural posture against something that they're being given in class. There's something about the assignment or something about the fact that, well, that they have to be there uh, for one thing that makes other opportunities to learn, whether that be in conversation with a friend at the lunch table or recess, um, feel different. But the classroom is a place in which they can hear, perhaps for the first time, an idea, like what you said about what Dante uh, gives us. And I think I think the human response to that, in so much as this can be fostered in the classroom, is to to really take it in and think about it and then have something to say about it. And and that's the the link between hearing it and then saying something about it is where that question of judgment or understanding comes in. And if you can get a class to seek understanding, then you know, really by by the, the meaning of the word, they're going to place themselves under it. 
right? That doesn't mean that they always have to live under it, but at least for the time, we're going to put ourselves in that position as if we, you know, we can receive something from this from this old story or from this this book that my teacher says is important, but I'm not really sold on yet. So I'd like to know a little bit more from your perspective. How do you foster an environment of seeking understanding in a in a world where um, people aren't always looking for understanding in the right places? How do you get them to see that that a poem that may or may not be about a sheep, but is probably about a girl? How do you get them to to first have that that desire to understand something from it before they even get into the the conversation or the sort of the rhetorical responses. Do you have any thoughts? I think there are two parts to it. Um, I think one part is that they do need to trust and respect the teacher. Um, if if they don't see that you know you're striving to live the kind of life that you're trying to present for them if they don't see that you know you love the text that you're teaching that you're constantly reading that you're pursuing virtue um then whatever you have to say in that regard is gonna kind of fall flat um also if they know that you don't like them um it will fall flat uh you know kids aren't dumb they they know when you're being hypocritical um so I think them respecting and trusting the teacher is a big part of it, because if they respect and trust the teacher, then there's sort of that sense, well, okay, um, this person is telling me to read this. Maybe I think it's boring. Maybe I don't want to. Um, but if they think it's important, if they truly think it's important in their own hearts, then maybe there is something here for me. So I, I think that student-teacher relationship of, of respect is important in that whole process. Um, and then also, you know, because you're always going to have the ones who aren't readers or the ones who aren't really interested in, in a book for whatever reason. And um, so, you know, I'll have conversations with them like, listen, you don't have to love everything that I give you, but you do have to trust that I'm giving it to you for a reason. And that there's something here that I think is beneficial for you as a person right now in your life. Um, and so I, I think that does help them open up to the stories that they're being given. And even if it's not something they would pick for themselves or even something that they would read again, because they're coming at text from that perspective that it's it's not just a story I have to read. It's not just a series of events and a list of characters. There's actually something here. Then it it um, can mean something to them and, and benefit them in a spiritual way. Maria, I know that you and I have talked about how um, teaching in classical schools, the use of narratives is important and you believe that it can be used in multiple subjects. I mean, we, we often think narratives is just in uh, literature class. I'd like you to speak a little bit more about your thoughts of the use of story in, in classical teaching in all, all areas of study. So I may be a little bit biased as a literature teacher and as someone who studied this, um, but I, I do think stories and storytelling are the way that we as human beings primarily understand the world. Um, and I think there's a good biblical foundation for this as well. Um, the Bible is a story. It's, it's the story of human salvation um, and, and how God interacts with man. And it is presented in stories. Um, you know, you, you look at the Old Testament uh, and you know, children's Sunday school, the, the stuff we give to them are all those stories um, from the Bible and kids love it. Um, adults love it. Everyone loves it. The Bible is one of the greatest books ever written. Um, it's one of the greatest stories ever told, even if you don't believe that it is true. And so, you know, I, I think if narratives and stories are good enough for God, they probably should be good enough for us. Um, but, you know, I have seen people use story to understand the world in, in literally every 
subject in every discipline. So, you know, in literature, it's easy because it is all about the the human stories and narratives that we tell, um, fiction or nonfiction. Um, but we do it in history. Um, you know, you have Herodotus and the the ancient uh, historians who were a little bit less interested in whether things actually happened and um, more interested in whether the things that they thought happened fit into the, the grand narrative of who they were as a people and how they should be as human beings. And we still do this in history, even though I think we're a little bit more um, fact and timeline focused now. I've seen it done in the sciences. Um, one of my favorite museums is the Natural Science Museum in Houston. Um, and what it does that I think is brilliant, even though I disagree with its overall message and interpretation, is in its uh, paleontology exhibit with all the dinosaurs and stuff, it starts off um, with the story of like the smallest microbe, a heroic microbe battling in the seas, uh, the like ancient primordial seas, I think that's how it goes. Um, they literally like cast a microbe as a hero that, you know, and then they go through like the whole uh, story of evolution from that small microbe all the way to human beings. and. Along the way, they have illustrations and exhibits, and they, when they get to the dinosaurs, they pose them in like really dynamic poses, um, and so it's it's all a narrative, and it's it's interesting and engaging, and you don't forget it um, when you go, and so I I think I'm not going to speak to mathematics and narratives because math is my weakest subject, so I'm sure there are. <laughs> ways to do it in math. I know we use word problems. Um, and I have found myself, I, we were taking kids camping, um, as a, a school trip and I needed to get soda for the camping trip. And I found myself going like, okay, if I have 80 students going on this trip and each student can drink this many ounces and they come in this many liters, you know, how many liters of soda do I need to get? So, I mean, we do this. Um, we, we do tell stories and, and number and, and science and words and it, it all fits in. Um, and so I, I think just understanding that human beings are designed to be storytellers and to see the world and interpret our own lives as stories if you understand that, I think, and apply that to teaching, it can make learning anything um, not just interesting, but important to whoever's doing the learning. Uh, yeah, I think, I think I'd think i wanna use the word meaningful as well. And it seems to me that one of the things you're, you're about is helping students through story and through an appreciation of their own stories uh, find meaning in what you're doing together in the classroom. Because if it's not meaningful, then, you know, uh, it's really not humane because humans are built for meaning and we're built uh, for meaning uh, through stories. That's how we live into uh, things, um, you know, that, that really matter. Uh, because they they mean something to us and they mean something to to the life we're trying to lead. And I think this relates to things you were saying earlier about how there's some competing ideas that can sneak into a school or into a classroom because um, there are competing narratives in the world to tell people what matters, what doesn't matter, uh, what things mean. And, you know, I think a lot of those narratives really increasingly move towards a very chaotic understanding of, of the world. Whereas the narrative that the, that the classical school is trying to present is one of order and harmony. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, your classroom can be sort of a bastion of sort of an ironic sense, a safe place, right? From all the chaos in the world, people are so desperate for safe places and they're looking for them in all the wrong places. And so I'd, I'd like you to say a bit more about how um, you create this atmosphere in your classroom where people are are receptive to stories. Um, sort of, um, there's a natural inclination there, but 
a little uh, based on what I know about you and your personality is you are not necessarily the fun teacher. That's not to say you don't have fun in class, but how do you, how do you create uh, or establish relationships with students that help them develop relationships with the text or with the subject without falling into the trap of thinking that you just need to cater to their baser interests or to somehow just make, you know, uh, your, your, your classroom, the fun classroom. I want to jump in here, Mariah, add to your story, how you make narration so dynamic, because I know that that okay. is part of how you do it. I know that's part of the story to the answer to this, because I've seen you teach. Yeah, so I would, I would actually agree. I am not necessarily the fun teacher, like in the general sense of whatever that means, which again, I think we have fun. I have a great time. Um, you know, even if I'm doing stuff that they hate, you know, I get a real kick out of grammar. I know that most people hate it. I'm having a great time and I just believe that everyone else will have a great time with me. Um, but I, I think part of it is I do take the subject seriously. Um, you know, when we, some of it is a time management thing, but you know, when we get closer to summer, I'm still the last one, you know, going when everyone else is, you know, wrapping up and maybe focusing on playing games or watching movies or going outside. Um, we're still doing Renaissance poetry at the end of May uh, because, you know, there's just so much that I want them to have access to. And there are only so many days in a year. So I'm pushing um, right up against uh, the, the edge of the calendar every year. Um, I don't do a, a lot of like games or gimmicks, mostly because I don't feel like I have to. Um, because like I said, I, I take the, the work seriously, not that other people don't. And I, I also take the, the kids seriously. Um, and, you know, one of my things, and I, I talk with my coworkers about this. I have great coworkers. Um, you know, we, we see a lot of times that teenagers especially get infantilized. They're, they're not given responsibility. People hold their hands. Um, you know, oh, there's a deadline. Oh, you just didn't feel like making the deadline. It's okay. Just turn it in, you know, three weeks late, you know, stuff like that, that doesn't actually help them. Um, and so I, you know, make it very clear from day one, I'm not going to do that. You know, if there's a deadline, there's a little bit of grace because sometimes stuff happens. Um, but if you miss it, you miss it. And that's hard, I think, for a lot of people at first. But I think ultimately, if you take the work seriously and you take them seriously, they will rise to the occasion. And that doesn't mean that the work can't be enjoyable. So something I do with narration um, that has worked really well, I think, is, uh, and even with the, the high school students, because, you know, they're still young and kids at heart, um, I will make them tell me what happened. And when they do, I draw what they say on the board. I do stick figures. It's not fancy or glorious. Um, but again, because I, I do this thing where I, I take everything, you know, very seriously, I don't mock myself or my drawings. Um, I insist that they are the greatest pieces of art that have ever graced a whiteboard. Um, and the kids get a really big kick out of it because they're clearly not. Um, but it also, it helps them remember, uh, you know, what happened because now they're like, they're trying to think of more things for me to draw. Sometimes I will let uh, students come up and, and do the illustrations on the whiteboard. And so it really becomes this opportunity for them to push themselves to see how much they can remember, how much from the text they can get so that they can see their words be brought to life, uh, even if they are with um, hilarious stick figures. I want to say something about her stick figures. You ever watch those uh, doodles, you know, like where you're watching a video and they're narrating something, and they're doing those fast doodles on the blackboard with the white. Her stick figures are like those doodles and she's really good at it. So as the kids are narrating, she's doing these doodles all over with, 
with detailing going on. And so the kids are like, they want to make sure they add the details because they don't want her to, they don't want it to be out of the drawing. And so they get, the kids get so engaged. And I think this is one of the best ways for middle school and high school kids to engage in narrating. And uh, like, I don't, I know that I don't have the skills to doodle as well as Mariah does, but I sure would try if I were a middle school or high school teacher. And I would definitely try enough to where I could um, engage some kids in the classroom to come up and do it. And so I've seen her do that where the kids in the classroom, they're dying to come up and do the doodling up on the, on the board. It's, it's a brilliant method. I love it. I, I think that's, that's really um, charming. And and I, I think it's a great way, as you laid out, to, to get the students engaged as well. And, you know, for someone who who does not draw very well, uh, when I do draw on the board, uh, the students do delight in it because it's so, so horrible. But to your point, you know, I don't, I, I do, I do act as if the Sphinx that I just drew on the board is, is precisely what the Sphinx looks like. If you yes. could, if you could really be there and see it in person, the Sphinx has a tail. Did you know this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has a huge tail. So anyhow, um, I, speaking of the Sphinx, I drew the Sphinx on the on the whiteboard one time uh, for a class of seventh graders, and one of the boys got out a smartphone and asked to take a picture of it, and I said, "Okay, first, yes, and thank you, and two, why do you have your phone? <laughs> what is this? You're supposed to turn that in?" Uh, but that is uh, a great way, and and I think you know if you're not scribbling on the board, I mean, is that what all teachers are supposed to do? Just like scribble madly on the board and. Uh, I just thought that was part, if you're not covered in chalk, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like maybe you're not really giving it your all, but um, I, I want to, I want to try to connect that. Um, and what I just said about the smartphone back to our conversation about other ways that students are getting information and things that are competing with us in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, and, and students are increasingly having these portals in their lives where they're, they're getting a lot of information and they're being fed different stories. And to your point about the museum, you know, isn't, isn't it fascinating that even science can't resist the power of myth, right? They have, it has to be told in that way um, because it's, it's what we're made for. It's how we communicate and share meaning. Um, but what are some other ways that, that you feel like your classroom sort of um, is, is a, a haven, let's say, or, or or a place to step out of that stream, and and do something different than what students are getting really throughout the rest of their day, um, whether in other uh, educational settings or just uh, among their peers or even at home. Um, what are some other goals that you have as a teacher in terms of um, what you're trying to do together with your class? So one of the things I think classical education is right on is the minimization of technology in the classroom. Um, you know, so sometimes the internet will go out at school and it doesn't matter because, you know, we weren't gonna use it anyway. The only time it, it actually matters is if I wasn't on top of things and didn't print out the stuff that I needed to print out, but that's okay, we can usually roll with it anyways, um, especially since most of the times we're working out of actual books. Um, so, you know, it's it's very much an atmosphere where you have to be present. Um, and you know, if if you're going to be distracted, you have to work a little bit harder. Um, so I have a place in the back of my room called Phone Jail where I make them put all their phones, mostly because I don't trust them to keep them in their locker because I know they don't. I know it's in their backpack. Um, and most of them will put it in phone jail. Um, cause my rule is if it rings in your backpack, it's mine. If it rings in phone jail, we just turn it off and it's whatever. Cause I know you're not using it, but so, you know, the phones are, they're all the way in the back of the room. So they're, they're not even a thing. Um, we don't really use computers or tablets unless uh, I'm making them type a paper. And even then, you know, I've got them where I can see all the screens. And so I can see what you're doing. So it's, it's very much, you know, you, you have to be here. If you're going to be distracted, at least it's going to be looking at like one of the paintings that I have on the wall or like out of a window into nature. So, you know, at least you're getting something out of it. Um, and so I think that 
is is one of the the very right things that classical education has done is it's not that technology is bad. And I, I do try to model sometimes appropriate uses. Like if I'm asked a question, I don't know the answer to, I'll be like, listen, I'm going to get out my phone. We're going to Google it. We're going to find a good source for the answer. And, you know, now we all know, and then I'll, you know, put it away. Um, and so I, I think just modeling the, the appropriate use of technology, you as a teacher being present and not, you know, like sitting in the back grading papers or being on your computer or things like that. It just, it, it makes it a little more real. Yeah, I, I, I like you a lot because it sounds like a lot of your approaches in the classroom are, are the, the very same things that I try to embody. I, I try to be very thoughtful about what the students see me doing. And I kicked my smartphone to the curb uh, two years ago, and that has really helped tempted. a lot. I tell you, um, yeah, there's this there's this brick of a flip phone that I have that actually um, kind of catches the students' attention uh, in a good way because they're like, why do what like what is that and why do you have that? So if I have to take a call, um, I do have a policy of answering the phone anytime my wife calls, and and my my boss just has to understand that that's just my personal policy, um, being the the mother of three going on four children. But um, I try not to be on on my computer. And I think in so much as a, as an administration can can help the teacher not to, not to have to do a lot on the computer. Um, I think we're going to have to we're going to have to reimagine that in a lot of ways because increasingly, the idea is well if we do this on the computer, it'll make life easier. I don't know. I'm not convinced. And maybe easier is not the right answer. Maybe this hard way of doing it um, is is better. Uh, but that's perhaps a, a conversation for another time. Um, I think this has been a really fun conversation. I think you've given us a lot to think about. Um, as a consultant uh, on board with Beautiful Teaching, I'm sure we'll have you back on the program. And we want to tell people about what you're doing with us moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about the course that you're you're offering. So uh, I'm offering a course at the end of this month. So it's July 25th for middle school and July 26th for high school. Um, it's called teaching disputation. So um, basically one of the primary teaching tools in the middle ages was something called disputation, which was a form of debate and argumentation. Um, and I've been implementing it in my classroom for a few years. And I have seen it um, transform not just the way that students interact with each other and the way that they speak, but also the way that they write, um, which was uh, been really useful for me personally. Um, one of the things that I hate is grading papers that are badly written. Um, so uh, it's very helpful to train students how to think in a like linear logical way because if you can get them in that habit then the way that they speak and the way that they write is going to make sense um and so this would be a course just sort of how to introduce disputation with students um kind of go through like a sample disputation uh one of the ones i open i teach senior thesis at my school um which is, you know, where the, the kids have to basically do a year-long research project and then defend it in front of a panel. Um, one of the things we open up with is um, the really important um, and sort of, I guess, perennial question, is a hot dog a sandwich? Um, and we <laughs> have to go through uh, and you know, figure out, okay, well, what do we need to know in order to answer this question? Well, we need to know what a sandwich is. And so then we have to go and we have to like really in a medieval scholastic way, define what a sandwich is. Um, I've never seen more heated debates in the hallway than when we're going through this. And then, you know, finally they, they have to write like a formal disputation answering the question of whether a hot dog is a sandwich. And then we of course apply that in more serious ways um, to, to their actual questions that they will be seeking to answer throughout the year. And, you know, one of their outlines is in the form of a disputation and 
you know, it makes it easier to kind of push back and try and find weaknesses and flaws in the arguments so that they can revise and be stronger. So we'll be kind of going over how to do that and hopefully it'll be fun. Yeah, and I'm anxious to um, offer other classes by you as well, because I know that you could do a wonderful course on the art of narration for middle school and high school students. And I know that's That'd a big need. And, <laughs> and to just let our listeners know, all of these courses are immersion courses. They are interactive, live only, so that they are for teachers to experience what it feels like to be a student in the grade that you're teaching. So these are great for homeschool or classroom teachers, and they're going to help, um, they're going to help, uh, help all teachers, all educators in the craft of teaching well. So I'm very confident that you're gonna enjoy Mariah's uh, courses a lot. She's a, an absolute delight to watch teach. To watch her teach is just such a treat. And so I know these courses are going to be really, really well received. Um, our, our last question for all of our listeners, we, we ask them to either give us a quote that has had an impact on your life or perhaps a book that's had an impact on your life or a book that maybe you wish you had read earlier in your life. Can you think of anything? Yes. Um, there's one that actually immediately pops into my mind. Um, so I guess my dad is weird. So what I, whenever I was growing up, um, he would always push us to do better by quoting Thoreau uh, from uh, when he said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, um, kind of pushing us not to do that. And so that's always something that I've had at the back of my head um, even as an uh, adult is, you know, are the choices I'm making is, is the path I'm going down. Is this going to lead to a life that is full of meaning and joy and purpose, or is it going to lead to a life of quiet desperation where I'm just waiting for something better uh, to come around? So that, that push to be active rather than passive. Mariah Martinez, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, Well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven. <laughs>